The following message is by a guest speaker at Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. So let me uh, read the passage from, for us. It comes from Luke chapter 7, uh, verse 24 to 35. Uh, and I believe it's, it's up there. Luke chapter 7, verse 24 to 35. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one, one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist had come, has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So if you, read, um, if you read the passage right before um, this, um, this passage in verse 18, you see that Luke, the author, uh, recounts when John the Baptist uh, sends his messengers to, to Jesus to ask for confirmation um, as to whether Jesus was truly the Messiah, truly the Savior of the world. And it gives us a glimpse into a moment of weakness uh, for John where he, as he sits in prison, that he starts to struggle with doubt. And, and for a moment, we see that even for a person like John the Baptist, who had baptized Jesus and heard audibly the voice of God, that even he had a moment, a moment of doubt and a moment of weakness. And as a reader of this passage, you, you almost expect Jesus to respond um, by almost rebuking the disciples and saying something like, you of little faith, go back and tell John, did you not see and hear and, and did you not you know, uh, hear the voice of God that said, this is my son whom I love and whom I am well pleased with? And you expect some kind of response like that, but we don't see that in this passage. We actually see Jesus gently reminding his disciples that the signs of the kingdom uh, are present in his ministry and encourages them to go back and, 
and to and to believe and tell John to persevere and to continue to believe. And then at this point in the in the in the chapter, he after he sends off the messengers, he turns around and talks to the crowd about John the Baptist. And in verse twenty eight, he says something that is so confusing and is probably one of the more difficult um, verses in the Bible where he says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And it's, that's a very difficult verse. And um, I, remember, I remember the first time in my life that I had, I had heard this verse and and uh, I was a, a sixth grader going to my first retreat, um, and I was very uh, intimidated, and I was in a small group of other junior high sixth graders uh, at our very first retreat. And our counselor, I remember, sat us down in a circle, and he was very passionate and older than us, and he read this verse. And then he, he looked at us and said, are you more spiritual than John the Baptist? Are you more righteous than John the Baptist? Are you more holy? And, and do you love God more than John the Baptist? Because in this verse, the Bible says that if you want to be part of the kingdom, that you need to be greater than John the Baptist. And I remember um, just being so scared <laughs> and and feeling just so small and being so worried that if this is really true, because I had never, no one had ever read this verse to me in Sunday school, and this is the first time I had heard this new requirement of what it means to be a Christian. And uh, that night, I mean, I think other kids just you know, laughed it off or whatever, but for me, that night, I, all I could think about was, you know, how I needed to be better than John the Baptist to be a Christian. And... Um, you know, if I were to give you a word picture, it felt like, you know, there was, you know, Christian life was this high jump, and the bar was John the Baptist, and somehow I had to learn how to clear that bar uh, as a Christian. And it ignited me uh, just a real deep fear that I, I, I wouldn't be able to clear this bar. And if I'm real honest with all of you, and as I've shared with Steve, even in our conversations, um, the one question that I, I think sums up my deepest insecurities, my deepest inadequacies that I feel as a, as a man and as, a, as just who I am, if I'm really being honest with you, is, is the question of, do I have what it takes? Do I, do, do, do I Haman, have what it takes? Um, do I have what it takes to blank? Uh, do I have what it takes to leave my family Spiritually, do I have what it takes to provide financially uh, for for my family? Do I have what it takes to be a leader? Uh, do I have what it takes to succeed in in my corporate job? Do I have what it takes to uh, to be a good father? Uh, do I have what it takes to be a good husband? When I play sports, do I have what it takes to make the shot <laughs> in basketball? Um, and basically this question of do I have what it takes to, to be great? Uh, a lot of this, you know, I'm not going to go too deep into this, but for me personally is tied to some of my father wounds that I have in my life of 
even though I, I receive love and have a great relationship with my father, uh, feelings of, of maybe not making him proud or, or not doing enough, um, and just the normal tensions that I'm sure a lot of us here experience, uh, even in, as we grow up, and, and how often, if I'm really just being honest with myself, these are the questions that, that, that I, I, I wrestle with. I also take this question into my spiritual life and have asked myself, do I have what it takes to be a, a good Christian? Do I have what it takes to be regarded as great uh, in the eyes of God? I've even recently thought a lot about fatherhood and, and how even for my own children and my own son who's here, um, he plays basketball, and, and a lot of times I, I struggle with wanting him to do well and, and, and to, to represent the true family well. And, and oftentimes, even recently, I've had to apologize to him because... Uh, my lack of unconditional love and my my making him want to you know feel like he needs to perform in order to earn my love and and uh, adoration and it's funny every time I go to his game uh, every kid on the basketball team after they make a shot you know what the first thing they do is they look to their father and we're all sitting together and, you know, the, the, the eyes are saying, Dad, did I do well? Uh, and it's, 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 so, uh, it's so heartbreaking sometimes to see fathers that are, are just yelling and, and, you know, and writing their children. The question, do I have what it takes, is a question if, if a lot of us were to be real honest with ourselves, we, we struggle with. And in trying to answer this question, we either go from, uh, if we feel good about the question, if we have a lot of confidence, then we, 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 uh, we go and we're confident in our own abilities and we, we step forward with some level of courage because we, we feel like we can do it. And then in areas that are, are, are tender and are uh, exposing some of those inadequacies that we do feel, there is a temptation to uh, escape and to, to hide and to, to want to step away. Uh, for me recently, I experienced this uh, where there was a job that I was interviewing for to be a vice president in a company that, you know, was everything that I wanted to do and, and uh, everything was looking great. And uh, the CEO had talked to me about talking, meeting with the board and, and having a chance to uh, meet the founder. And he was telling me, I want you to start as soon as, you, you know, as soon as um, you can next week. And I was expecting this offer to come in and I was really excited about this position and then a couple of weeks later, I got a call from the human resources director saying that uh, they had just recently bought their competitor, and because they had bought their competitor, they were going to have to just put a hold on, on any hires. Um, and it just came out of left field. And I, I tried to, you know, my wife said, are you okay? And I said, I'm fine. You know, these things happen all the time. But um, I was hurt inside. I mean, I, I was really deeply hurt inside. And um, if I'm real honest with all of you, uh, the reason why I was hurting inside and the reason why I, I, I literally turned into, um, I, just, I was like watching a lot of TV and not wanting to go out and not wanting to be around people was because, again, I came back to this question of they didn't think that I, I had what it took 
you know, to be uh, the vice president. And I think in this passage, Jesus unpacks the mystery uh, that is John. And in so doing, he helps us to understand what it means to be someone who is great in the eyes of God. In verse 24, John, uh, he, Jesus affirms that John was not like a reed shaken in the wind. And this phrase simply means that John was not a man with shifting opinions and convictions. He was not flimsy or soft. He was a man of conviction, and he had deep-rooted you know, truths that had anchored his soul. Uh, one commentary said, that, said this about John. John the Baptist was nobody's yes man. He stood four square to every wind that blew and declared the message of God without fear or favor to peasant and prince. And even though in the previous passage we see a moment of weakness where John seems to get shaken, Jesus still affirms that John was a man of deep, deep convictions. And he knew the truth and he was able to express these truths. And we know that in history we often equate greatness with men and women of deep conviction that don't change even in the midst of opposition Uh, Men like Martin Luther King and Abraham Lincoln and women like Mother Teresa and and Joan of Arc and just, you know, these, these, these people that just have these deep convictions and could go through trials and still stand. And even spiritually, we, we, we tend to think that somehow that, that this is the path to Christian greatness and we aspire to be men and women of deep conviction and deep understanding of the Bible and, and people that are able to really articulate and be bold for Christ and be able to have a lot of passion, just like John the Baptist. That that is somehow a picture of Christian greatness. And for me, that was especially true because I, I honestly believe that if, if I could be a, a man of deep knowledge of the Bible and if I could preach and teach like Dr. Steve and, and, and other great speakers, that somehow that, that would somehow bring me to this place of greatness and from the time that I was in youth group to even now um, I've always been constantly uh, attracted to pastors that were just amazing in their pulpit ministry and, 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 and somehow they were my heroes growing up my friends had other aspirations I was weird in that I would practice preaching in the bathroom and I would you know work on my prayer voice (laughs) as a kid I you know I was president or leader of my youth group and I was president of my high school bible study Um, I was an officer and I practiced guitar because that's what Christian men do lead worship and and uh, I, I had every leadership role in Christian organizations my whole life I was always that guy that was a little bit older than he seemed and um, I was a youth pastor uh, in Kansas City and now I'm an elder <laughs> a living way um, and I, I know that deep inside that while people may have regarded me in these ways of, 
of, wow, this guy has a lot of passion and, and all that. For me, uh, I found that there was still a great emptiness in my walk, even though I had achieved you know, these images of, of being someone who can preach and, and do all these things that I associated with the heroes of my faith. And, and I've, I've emulated a lot of pastors in my life. And Jesus seems to be affirming in this passage that, that while greatness is tied to some degree to conviction and truth, that somehow that by itself, that it is not the complete definition of greatness in the eyes of Christ. And so he goes on to verse 25 and says, Did you go out to see a man in soft clothing? And when he probably asked this question, there were probably some snickers and laughs in the audience because everyone knew that John was the complete opposite of a man in soft clothing and fine clothing, that he was, he wore a rough coat of camel's hair. I don't even know what that means, but he wore clothes made of camel's hair, and he probably had this great beard and had honey on locusts, and, you know, he, he probably smelled and, because he lived in the wilderness. And, and so Jesus seems to be saying, well, greatness is not necessarily associated with, with riches and how well-dressed you are, uh, and how much money you have. And then he goes on in verse 26, and he talks about the debate that was happening at that time between the Jewish you know, Pharisees and teachers of the law that, that denied the credibility of John the Baptist and called them demon-possessed, and yet Jesus affirms that, yes, John, John is a prophet. And in so doing, he puts John the Baptist right on that list of a prophets in the Old Testament of Elijah and, and Moses. And he, he affirms, yes, that, that John is the prophet that is being foretold in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, that he is that messenger. But again, here, Jesus seems to be alluding that while being a prophet in many ways is great, that even that alone is not the complete picture of true greatness in the eyes of God. It's as if Jesus was saying to the crowd, hey, look, share with me or tell me your definition of greatness. And, and the first person raises their hand and says, well, I think greatness is men and women that have great conviction and could preach and teach and they, they, they you know, are able to have deep convictions that they don't bend under pressure. And Jesus says, yeah, okay, that, that, that's good. What else? And someone else raises their hand and says, well, you know, I see... I see, you know, these VIPs in society that, you know, have really well-dressed and they have a lot of influence and riches and, and, and these men seem like they're great. And Jesus will say, well, I don't know if that's greatness. And then finally you see the Pharisees come in and say, well, guys, everyone sit down. Greatness is, is, is being a prophet. Abraham and Elijah and Moses that is true greatness because these men had special access to God. There were only a select few of them, specially chosen by God to be God's voice to our people. That is greatness. That is greatness. And these people had special access to God. So that is it. Case closed. And Jesus it's almost as if he reads the minds of the people, as he often does in Scripture, and yet he throws down a hammer. 
and he exposes their lack of true understanding. And for me, you know, this passage is very meaningful to me because I feel like I've I pursued all three of those in my life uh, to, to try to pursue greatness and try to answer that question of do I have what it takes. I've, I've sought to be the guy that knows and memorizes the most Bible and to be someone that could preach and teach and have deep convictions that, that if somehow if I read more books and if I became, <clears throat> became knowledgeable in the Bible and could, could answer all the questions that somehow that, that, would, that would lead me to Christian greatness. And in my, in my work and in my career, I, I've, I've, I've really pursued uh, success in my corporate world and, and have, have had a lot of success um, being promoted and, 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 and leading teams. And, and yet, I haven't found true meaning and greatness there either. And then I thought, man, maybe if I can get access to be recognized as a, within a special group of anointed people and become a leader and a, a, an elder or a pastor or president of this group. Or, you know, when people look at me, they say, wow, that guy, you know, he, he's got, he's, you know, he's part of this elite group of people that, you know, have ability to make, you know, a great impact. That somehow that would lead to greatness. And in verse 27 to 28, Jesus finally unpacks his definition of greatness. John's role was to be a special messenger and that his role was to be the one that gets to play the trumpet and announce the entrance of the Messiah. He was the opening act in the concert that featured Jesus. He was the one person in history that was chosen to play that role. And Jesus says that he was more than a prophet, and in so that he was greater than Moses and Elijah, simply because of his proximity to the arrival of the chosen one, that it was his privilege to be the messenger. This is what one commentary says about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is not your common garden variety prophet, He was a very special prophet, and his ministry itself was a subject of prophecy. At least one scholar calls John's ministry a bridge because it connected the Old Testament era of promise to the New Testament era of fulfillment that comes in Jesus. John's ministry brings those two eras together because though he is the last of the Old Testament prophet, he's not prophesying about some future mystery man who will someday appear on the scene as the other prophets did. He had the profound privilege of actually pointing to the man and saying, that's him. He's the one we've been waiting for. And that places John in a class above everyone who has ever come before him. But Jesus doesn't stop there then throws another bombshell statement and says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So who is the least in the kingdom? Well, 
One commentary I read says that the least in the kingdom is the most insignificant person who enjoys the blessings of the new age of salvation that Jesus was bringing in. John was like Moses who viewed the promised land from the top of Mount Pisgah but did not enter it. He was the last of the heroes in Hebrews 11 who were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. It is not in moral stature or devotion or service, but in privilege that those who are least in the kingdom of God are greater than John. And this is the important, important part of this. Greater not for what they do for God. In this, John was unsurpassed. But for what God has done for them. It is not because of any superior merit of theirs that the disciples enjoyed these blessings. It was because they lived at the time when Jesus came and were called by him to share the life and service of the kingdom of God. Even to be his herald and forerunner, as John the Baptist was, was not such a great privilege as to participate in the ministry of the coming one to be heirs of the kingdom which John, at the last of the prophets of old, foresaw and told. The least in the kingdom are men and women like us that are able to look back to the cross and be able to see in full picture what it is that Christ has done for us. For John never had a chance to see the cross. He died before the cross. It was all for him and the prophets before him, a promise, and it was hazy. They knew and they believed, and yet they could not clearly see. And yet you and I, we have the privilege of of seeing and, and knowing what it is exactly that Christ has done for us. And in so doing, we are greater. And so Jesus is saying that true greatness before God is not what we can do for him, but it's the degree to which we are able to truly know and experience this intimacy with the person of Jesus Christ. That that is the definition, and that's how God sees greatness. Greatness is not about what you can do for God. Greatness is given to those that truly understand what God has done for them. In Luke chapter 10, later on, Jesus sends out the 72 to do missions, and it says that the 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And then he says this, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Greatness 
peace, success in life, according to the gospel, is not about what we can do for God, but truly being able to understand what God has done for us and truly being able to experience now that intimacy that we can have with Christ. The disciples of Jesus were greater than John the Baptist, not because they did more, but they had access to the master. They walked with him, they talked with him, they shared intimate moments, and therefore they were greater. You and I, in the eyes of God, if we have an intimate relationship with God, is greater than John the Baptist. Again, not for what you and I can do for God, but because we have seen the gospel, we have seen the cross, and we have the privilege of the Holy Spirit that lives in us, and we can walk with Christ in a very intimate way. And so my journey, as I shared even in the beginning, with the help of mentors like Dr. Steve has helped me to start to reorient my life away from the path I was headed, where I was just driven constantly by a a fear and and a desire to do more for God and and to somehow somehow be good enough, somehow be passionate enough and sacrificial enough and somehow pray more and fast more and give more and I was on that path and I was constantly feeling that pressure uh, in my walk with Christ and now I've shifted my journey to to focus more on, on hearing God in my life to go into solitude and to to hear the gentle whisper of God in my life and to to try to find my voice again in prayer and communion before God. And yet, I will be honest with you that I still feel the constant tug in my heart to try to cover up the insecurities and the inadequacies that I constantly feel around that question, do I have what it takes? Do I really have what it takes? And a phrase that I I use to remind myself over and over again to try to fight this tendency of, of the inadequacy I feel or times of wanting to do it out of confidence, out of my own ability, is I tell myself, Hyman, build, build your house in the gospel. Build your house in the gospel. And I know that this church and the preaching ministry here is, is, is right on about making the gospel a reality in our lives, that, that it is not just the entrance to our faith, it is the very foundation of our faith, that the gospel is not just a gate, but it is the road that we are on, that it is not just a destination, but it is the very house that we live in every day. And you and I have two choices in our lives, to walk, in our walk with God. One is to build our house on our own righteousness, in our own works, and to... Uh, and our own responses to the question of do I have what it takes 
and 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 in so doing to build fences and walls around those places that we feel a lot of insecurity in and and inadequacies in and then build these great trophy rooms for you know our accomplishments and things that we feel very confident in or we can build our house in the gospel which is entirely built on a personal secret intimate walk with god where prayer is a dialogue and a place where we can actually boast about our weaknesses, that you can actually come up in front of people and say, I struggle with this question all the time. Uh, And yet we can still not put confidence in us, in our own flesh, but to put confidence on the finished work of Christ. Let me end my time with with an illustration. you know, if I were to play taboo with all of you and I said, Greatness Chicago, and said, Who do you think of? All of you would probably think of Michael Jordan, I assume. Um, number 23, the greatest player in basketball history. You know, I, I live in LA and I have all these conversations with dumb people about, you know, Kobe Bryant being somehow, you know, at that place, and, and I, I have to resist the temptation to rebuke. And, and, um, and you know, if you, are, if you grew up in the time of the Chicago Bulls, um, you know, Michael Jordan was a, a hero. He was greatness personified. Um, you know, uh, I sang to myself, be like Mike. I... I uh, one of my close friends, Johan, who's here, is, was in this commercial. Be like Mike. Um, on our basketball team, we fought. We literally fought to over the, the t- number 23 jersey in terms of who would have that. And I got my first pair of Air Jordans uh, when I was um, in junior high. And I would literally walk like this, you know, because <laughs> I didn't want it to get dirty. And... When it did get stained at night, every night I would wipe it with a napkin because it was expensive and it was, I just wanted to last as long as it, I, I could. I remember every one of his, every awesome play that Jordan has done, I remember and I could recount to you. I, I, could, I could tell you um, the shrug. You remember the shrug after he hit all those three-pointers? You know? Uh, I remember the, the the dunk left switch in the Lakers. Uh, I remember the stripping the ball from Carl Malone and hitting that shot over Russell with a gentle push. I remember him hugging the, the 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 trophy and like a baby and crying, and I remember tearing up with him. Uh, I remember when he announced his retirement. I remember when he came back like twice. Um, for me growing up, Michael Jordan was greatness. And uh, in September 2009, Jordan was, uh, uh, there was this big event where Jordan was inducted into the Hall of Fame. And I remember uh, taking the time to watch his speech and, and, um, and you know, really excited about what would he say now that he's inducted into you know, basketball immortality. Um, 
And I don't know about you, but when I listened to his speech, and I'm sure some of you guys have listened here, it was weird. It was disappointing. It was, it was um, instead of taking the time to really thank people, he would talk about how he, you know, beat this person. And he would bring up just old, you know, petty stuff. And, um, and one sports journalist wrote this. He said, Michael Jordan, the Chicago Bulls guard, was invincible. Michael Jordan, the man, is vulnerable, complicated, and ultimately human. I miss Jordan, the hero. I don't really want to know Jordan, the man. And that, that's kind of the way I felt. I, I was, what, you know, in his speech, it just felt like, man, you know, uh, this man that I had really, you know, admired, I just didn't feel like, you know, it was a great speech. And a lot of others had also said the, said, said the same thing. And so, and so I was watching and, and thinking about that. And in the same class that was being inducted, there was also David Robinson who was inducted into the Hall of Fame. And David Robinson was, is a very devoted Christian, and he was one of the great centers to play the game. He was kind of, I would describe him as one of the first LeBron James types of, of type of basketball player that he was so tall and yet he was so muscular and strong and 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 he once scored seventy one points in a game. It's only one of five people to score more than seventy points. And he was respected by his teammates. And in fact, when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, the Spurs organization paid for the whole organization to fly up just to be there for David. Um, and in David's speech, I'm calling him by first name, I don't know. <laughs> David Robinson's first, uh, in his speech, he took the time to really genuinely thank people. And there was a very special moment where he, he spoke to each of his sons and affirmed them and told them how much he loved them and was proud of them. And then he talked to his wife and said, you, want, you make me become, want to become a better man. And and it was so emotional and so special. And I remember tearing up a little bit there. And, and then at the end of his speech, uh, he, he gave a, a closing address. And I, I want to show it to you. Um, and so let's, let's go ahead and play the clip. Jordan had spent his whole life building around his own accomplishments, his own competitiveness, his own drive his own need to prove something, that he was good enough, that he was, did have what it takes to be a champion. And at the end of that whole path, he ended at a place where it was just about him. And there was this emptiness. And on the other, other side was David Robinson, who, who understood the gospel and understood what it meant to, at the end, to, to give and acknowledge uh, God for all that he has done and to rest in the gospel. And for me, even though I had so respected and admired Jordan all these years, I remember at that moment I said, God, help me to be, go down this path rather than this path that I was on. And as I close. I just want to encourage you. I want to exhort you as a church to build your house on the gospel and to, as you 
as you strive to answer the questions of inadequacy, insecurity that, that you have in your heart as I do in my heart, that rather than trying to reply with more works and more righteousness and just trying to do more, that it would be a response of, of understanding that the greatness that we have as believers comes from the finished work of Christ and we can rest in it and we can enjoy it and we could have this intimate walk with Christ that is a true treasure of our walks. Let's pray together. Let me just encourage you to just take a minute and just be honest and, and open before the Lord. If you're like me, uh, it's not easy to admit that there are these questions that often expose our deepest insecurities. Do I really have what it takes? Do I really have what it takes? And even now, I, I seek the affirmation of people to try to answer that question. Even now, I find myself in moments trying to escape and trying to run away and, and trying to not address that question by, by spending time doing things that would allow for me to just simply avoid. But as I'm learning to walk with Christ again, as I'm learning to learn how to pray again and learn how to do things for God just simply because I love him and because I want to know him and I want, I want to feel his, his pleasure for me, not because of what I can do, but simply because he already died for me and he loved me. That's been my journey that I've been on, and I, I wanted to share that with you because a lot of it has been impacted by the ministry here at ICC. And I'm sure a lot of you here are also going through that journey of reorienting your walk with Christ again to make it about those things, to not overcomplicate it, to simplify, and in your brokenness, to not hide, but to embrace the gospel that Christ died for us while we were sinners. And he extends his hand to us to walk with us as we journey through life. So again, let me encourage you just to take some moment to pray. And I'm sure we'll sing a song and respond to the Lord.